0: He's a friend of God, but if there's one characteristic that we're going to say that stands out, it's going to be faith. And he is the hero of the New Testament that we look back to and say he is a character of faith. Now in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, where we started last week, just to roll into our Bible study quickly here, we know that here's a fellow who is a real man of faith, and it started very early in his contact where all of a sudden he meets God. In Genesis 11, we get a little bit of a family history towards the end of the chapter. It talks about his father, his grand father, his father, and how they move from Ur of the Chaldees to go to Haran and then they end up God speaking in Genesis 12 verse 1 and saying, Abraham, I want you to go all the way down into the promised land. I want you to catch something. Hold in Genesis chapter 12. Hold your finger there. Go to the New Testament. There is an explanation of why they moved from from Ur to Haran and then they stopped. And it's given in Acts chapter 6. Somebody asked me about this afterwards. They said, well it said that, that his father had moved the family. But Acts chapter 7 gives a little bit of clarification. In Acts chapter 7, this is Stephen preaching to the Jews when he is, bless you, when he is facing persecution. And it says in verse 2, and he said, men and brethren and fathers, Acts 7 verse 2, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he said to him, get thee out of thy country and from your kindred and come into the land which I shall show thee. Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran and from thence when his father was dead he removed him into this land wherein you now dwell. And so this fellow from the very beginning he was very certain of God's leading. Now when I say that you and I know that God said go that direction you go until I tell you to stop. He's not certain of the ending spot but he is certain God is leading. That God is directing. God came to him, appeared in his glory to him when he was all the way back in that time period when he was in the Ur of the Chaldees. He's also extremely confident. In Hebrews 11 we read these words talking about his confidence in God. In Hebrews 11 if you want to turn there or just listen as I read it through. In Hebrews he's going to make the statement or God's going to make the statement about him and saying in verse 8 by faith Abraham when he was called to go into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance he obeyed. He went out not knowing where exactly he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He is commended for that faith, having confidence in God. And God has given him just very few promises in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, verse 1, God said to him, get you out of your country, from your kindred from your father's house, unto a land that I will show you I will make thee a great nation, I will bless thee, make thy name great you shall be a blessing, I will bless them that bless you, curse him that curses and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now in in addition to that statement, let's put it all together, God is saying to him I'm going to give you three things, I'm going to give you land a property and inheritance that no, nobody in your family has title rights to. It's somebody else's property, but you're going to end up with it. You're going to have lots of offspring. You're going to have lots of generations after you. And multitudes, in fact, are going to be as the sands of the sea. And I'm going to give you personal blessings. And it comes to national blessings in time. The protection, the provisions, and you know, those who curse you, I will curse. I'll bless those who bless you. And you're going to bless all the nations in the earth. So he's giving him basically these three promises. Says We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. And so here's a fellow, he has confidence in God, he's certain God is leading something else that stands out in the early part of his, his saga that we read about. He is in contact with God. As he's moving along <coughs> we read he gets to the promised land. Jump down in chapter 12 where we ended up last week in verse 7. The Lord appeared unto Abraham and said unto your seed will I give this land. There he built an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. He gets up, he moves, unto a mountain on the east side of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, high on the east. And there he built an altar, another one, unto the Lord, and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed. That word for called is the intensive idea that he called with persistence. And he kept on calling. And so we have this idea That here he is having contact with the Lord from his perspective that as he's traveling he is going to have time with the Lord. Now just let me pause for a second. Let me just do something, you know, not out of the text, but let's just stop and talk about the person of faith. It's going to get, his faith is built by having time with the Lord. Okay, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Question that often comes up, and afterwards, somebody asks me this question, would you, any suggestions on how to improve my time and my devotional time, my time where I'm reading or praying? Just give you some observations. Some of you have, have this down pat. Others of us are struggling to maintain a consistency and it's a perpetual battle for some of us. Others of you, it's no problem. Some of you have never started. Here let me give you a few suggestions of just something that might be helpful to you. Like Abraham did, have a designated place where you're going to have this worship time. A spot where you can go to and it's this spot. You know it's there. You and I are creatures of habit. And so part of the thing of creating habits is having a spot, having a place. And choose a place wisely not in the middle of the kitchen when the kids are doing their breakfast. Pick a place where you can have a little bit of privacy and, let's add to that, a time that is suitable to have a few minutes without without knowing you're going to have interruptions. So pick a place, a designated place, a designated time. Make this your ritual, your routine, if you would, so that you can be a little bit more disciplined. That's my spot. That's my time. Have a prayer list. It is really helpful to have something written down so that when you're praying, you don't get caught up with just repetitious thoughts that are just meandering through your mind, but you can purposely take like your Wednesday night prayer list and then pray through those items. Another time, take a bulletin. Pray through those items. Another day, have your family needs and your family names, but rotate in some of this prayer list, run through it, and have it where you can keep you focused. I would have do this. For me, this is really, really profitable. Write down my thoughts. As I'm going through a text or a passage, write them down keep track of them, and just, even in a journal, some idea that just helps me because it goes in the eye gate, but also as I'm writing it down, it helps me to retain and to think through a little bit as I'm writing down some of the thoughts or what I glean. Make sure you do this. Make sure you have a single truth that you can hold on to this day. Whatever that truth may be, that God is going to help me in the trial, that I work on humility, that I see in in this, we're going to see this evening, that I work on integrity. Something you can walk away, and if somebody were to say, what are you working on today? You would have a targeted truth that you are spiritually trying to be cognizant of throughout the day. Can I add this as well? Make it a praise time. Do a little bit of singing. If you're in a private place, your singing won't disrupt other people. And so you have a song or two according to Ephesians. That is part of the filling of the Spirit. That when you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to respond with that praise. And so do that. I would recommend this, even beyond your devotional time, that on a perpetual basis, you are putting into your life some other type of literature that is helpful, that, can, that goes along with your Bible, a Christian book on a study of a section of the Bible, on the life of Christ, or some idea. And I'm not talking Christian fiction love story. I'm talking about something that would help you grow Uh, in your understanding of doctrine or of God or the way he works or an area that you're struggling with maybe it's a book that you need that's talking about getting anger under control maybe it's a Christian book that you would need that's talking about how not to be a complainer maybe it's a Christian book many of you made the comment here two weeks ago you're going to work on praying maybe you need to be picking up during this period of time a book about, about your prayer life and some ideas about praying Read a book, read a chapter on a a daily basis or a section of it just to keep your mind fresh or pick up a Christian biography. Get heroes of the faith that you'll learn how others handled their spiritual difficulties, challenges and we hear of testimonies that way but this would help you to improve. If you haven't a pattern, pick up some of this and help make that daily pattern something that is profitable and beneficial for you to be in the word of God. So we have Abraham doing this type of thing where he's having a a time where he's having contact where there's a time, there's a place. And by the way I remind you that even in this text if you look at it he's going to an area where they talk about the tree by Manoah. That is there's oracles around. He isn't intimidated to doing his worship of God just because the people around him are pagan, atheistic, anti-Jehovah and so he's going to make sure that it's stated and knowing that he's a worshiper of the Lord God. Something else that happened in his life. That here he's walking by faith, confident God is leading. Here he is, he's believing God's promises, he's certain in the will of God, and he's having contact with God, but he is confronted by major trial a major trial very early on in his walk of faith. Now to me, the travel would have been a big trial, traveling for weeks and months with all those different people. And so that would have been a trial, traveling on the donkey or traveling on the camel, keeping track of all the herds That would be a difficulty. Here he is, he gets into the land and all of a sudden we read in in Genesis where he's journeying, verse 9 of chapter 12, going still towards the south as God is leading and then verse 10 we read these words. And there was a famine in the land. And Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was, what's your Bible read? It's grievous? Okay, anybody have another phrase? Okay, it's severe. It was very severe. It's very intensive okay, is the idea in the Hebrew, this is really, really a a bad, bad famine. Kind of gets us to think about Joseph in those seven years of famine type idea. It was a very serious situation. Here's our fact. Here's our truth that all of us keep in mind. Those who choose to follow God will be tested right away in your Christian life and sometimes severely. So we know that this is a reality. We shouldn't be caught off guard. I'm I'm impressed by what Jesus keeps telling the disciples and we're going to deal with this on Sunday. In John 6, 16, he is saying, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving and you guys, it's going to get really tough for you. He doesn't pull any punches with his disciples. He said, if they persecuted me, they will... Yeah, in fact, he uses in John 16, I better not preach that whole thing now, but in John 16, he uses the word 11 times, they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you. They're going to hate you and so we know that even when the disciples came on the scene it's the same thing, you go through the Bible that when we choose to follow God that doesn't mean everything's a bed of roses our step of faith doesn't stop with okay we got born again, God allows the trials or God brings them in, we don't always know who the author is God uses the trials to do what? to build our faith he wants us to move beyond just I'm saved he wants us to grow into sanctification to keep on going, one of the ways he does it is by cutting away the rough edges, smoothing us off by sanding us down with trials." Abraham gets a trial. Now what I find interesting is thinking about his trial in his context. Abraham has this trial that God obviously knew what was happening. God's controlled the weather. He knows what's going to happen. He knows about the crops, the cattle, those things. And so here his son is moved into this region. God has just clearly directed him, come into this area of central Palestine and by the way there's going to be a famine that hits right about the time that you park there. This is no mistake with God. What's interesting is to think about the trial and the severity is because this hits the necessity of life. This isn't like, oh man I, I don't have a signal here on my cell phone. That's terrible. No, this is a real necessity. This is a real problem. The food is the problem. That all of a sudden, how I'm going to keep these, all these people with me? How I'm going to keep all the cattle? And remember, he's a sojourner. He's coming through. He is traveling. And so he doesn't have his base of operations totally set up. He's going to be pressed to the core to figure out provisions. And then it adds to it, it's a very severe throughout the land type famine. And so it happens in his life, quite severe, quite grievous, as you said. It's unlike anything Abraham knew. To remember where he grew up, he's a city boy. He was in Ur. He was in Haran. Somebody asked me last week about that when I made comment that that Ur was a city of about 34 uh, acres and at the same time there's about 300,000 people. Remember the Old Testament is kind of like we do cities around here today. We say that the city of Philadelphia has X amount of people but the city proper is about this big. So what we're talking about is Haran is about, I'm sorry, Ur with its with its walls is about the 34 acres, but their population would include all the people outside who, if there was a trouble, where would they run into? They would run into the city. So don't be confused by the statistics. What it was is a pretty good-sized city of that day, and he had all this population. But we said last week that both Ur and Haran were known as very prosperous. Cities. They wouldn't have had these famines in that region. They were in that Fertile Crescent region at this time. They would have. They had a lot of mercantile uh, travels and ships, and they had their own their own whole entire merchant marine or merchant navy, excuse me, that was going out and was was doing international trade. So he grew up in this city. He didn't experience some of this out in the wilderness, out in the desert region where things are sparse. And then on top of it, there's a famine in the land and there's not the Walmarts or you know, the Sam's Clubs to go and to catch up with items. So this is quite new to him. This is quite challenging to him. I think it's compounded by other circumstances that would all of a sudden be extremely challenging. Let's go back a little bit. God has promised him three things when he left the area. God had promised him, remember we said them already? God said, I'm going to give you this land this land that you're traveling through, it's all yours. We've already read it, that it's been promised now, or alluded to twice in this text. That he said it at the beginning, and then he said it again, where he said the land's going to be yours when he mentioned it in verse 7. And so he's told him you're going to have the land. He also said you're going to have offspring. You're going to end up with lots of kids, nations are going to come from you, and you are going to be one who's going to be blessed with provisions, protection, prosperity. Now wait a minute. God has said this to Abraham. And Abraham traveled based upon this idea that God's going to take care of me, God's going to provide, and God's doing all these things for me. He gets into the land that God has promised and there's a problem. We read about the problem when it says down in verse 5, when he comes into the land, somebody's already there. The Canaanites are there. That makes it kind of tough. That makes it difficult. You know how it is when you come to church and somebody's in your pew? and you get a little bit awkward. How come they're sitting in my spot? Okay, you're flying in a plane. Let's pick on an airplane since that's been the recent hubbub. What would you do if somebody's sitting in your seat in the airplane? Oh, that's okay. I only paid $1,000 for that flight. It's okay. They can have my seat. I paid extra to be by the window in that extra leg room but if this little child wants to sit there, they're more than welcome to sit there. No. Most of us would do what? No, don't start a fight. Okay, now you know, get escorted off. Most of us call the stewardess. We would say, hey, wait, this is mine. And then the argument goes, I'm here first, squatter's rights. Or there's confusion about the tickets. Well, here's Abraham. He's coming, and God says, oh, by the way, this is the seat you're going to get on this plane of the universe. You get this seat, it's already occupied by a whole bunch of people. Okay? That would, that, now think about it. God told me i get this land. God told me i get this land. How's this going to work? You're standing there looking around and the Canaanites are in your spot. Then God says you're going to have, you're going to have offspring. Now this has been going on for a while. There is still no sign. Okay? Even if we're talking weeks and months, if you are told that you're going to have a baby and you are really desirous of a baby, you're looking for that baby, not in 10 years or 20 years when you're looking for the baby. Now okay? And you're checking things out all, you know, you're checking the body and everything, every every cycle you want to say, okay, is this the time? Is this the time? You're anxious for that. There's no baby. There's no baby. And the reality is, Abraham's not getting any younger. Neither is Sarah okay and so you understand if he's there and this and then compounded the blessings are I'm going to take care of you I'm going to take care of you and the first time you, know, you wake up in the morning after you parked in the land and you get the news hey news flash there's a famine in the land wait a minute what are you doing God what are you doing you just made all these promises and right now the way I see it absolutely zero has happened in in this process you got me here but what am I going to do now? You know, things aren't working out quite the way I thought God would do that. Did you ever have those moments that you're saying God's going to take me, he's going to lead, he's going to guide, and all of a sudden, this isn't quite the way I thought God was providing or God was taking care of things. And so compound that with Abraham's, Abraham's circumstances, putting it all together. He's kind of caught off guard. And Abraham's response when he has these trials that face him, he, his response is amazing. We read in the, in the passage these words. There's a famine in the land, and Abraham went down into Egypt to sojourn there. There is something missing, something huge that's missing. Okay, that Abraham's response to the trial, response to the difficulty, what did he do in the previous three or four verses that's mentioned twice, but he, there's no mention here? Calling on the Lord. You notice that's something that his, his first reaction is not that we have any indication. If he did, it's not there. There's no indication that he's praying for guidance whatsoever. I think as you go on, that's probably what happened. He did not pray for guidance, as you'll see in the next few minutes. There's no indication that he's running to the Lord and saying, God, what do I do? God, what do I do? I'm certain of your leading. I'm certain of, of your directing to this point, but all of a sudden in a panic situation, He's going to take things and matters into his own hand. He does what is logical to do in that region, in that world. It says he went down into Egypt. Now why would anybody head to Egypt? If you were living back in that time, why would you go to Egypt? And This isn't, this isn't real hard, okay? There's food in Egypt. Egypt has prosperity. What do they have? The natural resource that typically guarantees food. Typically. They got the Nile River. They got the water. They got the, they got the irrigation, everything that's needed. Now, some will respond and say, okay, Abraham immediately did wrong, and the wrong is he went into Egypt. I'm not convinced of that. Okay, I, I think it was a wrong move, but for another reason. Okay, let me, see, let me explain what I'm talking about. Okay, some say that every time you read about Egypt it was always wrong for God's people to always ever go down to the Egypt. It is always a symbol, uh, symbol of something problematic. However... There are a couple different texts that I think would differ with that. There's a text that we read in Genesis 46 that said go down, take your children um, uh, Jacob, go down there and sojourn for a while and then you come back out. And so there's clearly direction given to Joseph's family, go down and join him. There is another character in scripture who went for refuge in Egypt and it was totally approved. Okay? Do you remember in Matthew 2? Who it is? Joseph and Mary and who they take with them. Jesus Christ predicted. Okay, so to say that every time everybody went down, it was totally, absolutely bad, um, I'd be a little bit careful saying that statement. However, it's clear in this text and others, the problem of going down to Egypt, like in this case, is going down without clear direction from the Lord. If you take the passage, Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30, I don't think I have it up here. I do. Yeah, watch. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth. He goes on. He says, to, they go down to Egypt to strengthen themselves and the strength of Pharaoh to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be to your shame and, the trust, in the, and the, they, the trust in the shadow of Egypt, your confusion. Now I know this is written generations later. And it's written to the Jews who are being attacked by the Babylonians. And there was a tendency to say, let's go to Egypt. Egypt will be our protector. Well that came from generations earlier even. Hey, let's run to Egypt. It's a safe place. It's a prosperous place place, we can manage, and in that same vein, we know that what happens out of this, God is not blessing Abraham for what he's going to do. Okay, there's going to be problems. Why, does, why is that? It seems as he's headed down to Egypt, not asking direction, not getting clarity from the Lord, going down there and manipulating the circumstance reacting, and coming up with his own man-made um, solution to the problem, his own strategy. Watch how it unfolds. It gets even worse for him that he goes, he says, uh, as he goes down, it came to pass when he was come near unto Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, behold, I know that you are a fair woman to look upon. There's a whole detail that goes along with this. Let let me make sure I I keep myself in sequence here. Abraham is headed to Egypt. And again, I don't think he has clarification from the Lord. He's headed down there, and it's, it's the place to go. It's, the, it's the, you know, the population center that's closest that would be helpful, and he's used to population centers. So he's headed down that way, and he knows this isn't going to be the best places to go. He talks to Sarah and said, Hey, you're really, really fair. You're really good-looking at age 65. You're still a knockout. Okay, you are still going to be extremely attractive. He says, therefore, it shall come to pass when the Egyptians see you that they shall say, "Ooh, this is his wife." They will kill me, but they will save you alive. Okay, uh, we have to understand a little bit, thing, little, little Egyptian history. Okay, the Egyptian nobility. He's saying they're kind of they're going to want you. Sarah. They're going to want to take you. Um, The the passage makes it very clear. She is beautiful at age 65. A little bit of history. The Egyptian woman in the writings that talk about ancient Egypt at this time talk about the Egyptian woman not retaining their beauty after a certain age of time. It talks about in a very critical sense even by Egyptian writers that their ladies kind of look Um, anything I say is going to be bad, okay, they look ragged and rugged after a few decades, okay, is the way that it's written and so the Egyptian writers, some of them talk about that uh, as ladies get older, they lose, the the Egyptian woman, they lose their attractiveness, but it was no one that the ladies who lived up in the Canaanite area, the Palestine area, that they kept their beauty and it was a rugged beauty and they were often sought after by the Egyptian men. And so we read that in extra-biblical writings. You won't find that in Solomon's writings or anything like that. But you have that statement made, that it's recorded in several different spots. So the Egyptians, you know, a prize would be getting a woman from that region. In your harem, in in your collection of gals, that she would be a prize. As well, the Egyptians had a really good high moral standard. They would not take another man's wife they would not commit adultery. That would be wrong. So what they could do, okay, the, their moral standard was, I can't take somebody else's wife, but if I kill the guy then his wife is free for the taking. So I keep a high moral standard. Go figure, okay. okay, you know that, 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 That's how they thought. Abraham says, okay, I'm afraid the Egyptians may kill me and you love me and so he says, "Let's do this." Let's, and he comes up with this plan. And you all know, you've heard it before. Say, "I pray you, I pray you, please, please, please. You are my sister, and it will be well with me for your sake, and my soul shall live because of you." Oh, you will save my life. Such a charmer in this verse, isn't he? Okay, the way he convinces her. Now we know it's partially true. They had the same father, different mothers. We know that from other accounts. And technically, this isn't a lie. Technically, technically, it's you know okay. We are you know we are related. We're half sister. Buddy was all designed to deceive. Okay, so it could be technically true, but ethically, it's a lie. Do, do you ever run into those issues? Something is technically okay. You just did your taxes. Are there certain things that are technically okay, but you ha- you can really have to fudge? Okay, I'll give you an illustration. i preaching way I'm in a family's home. And I may have told you this before. The family, the kids were telling me how their parents do their finances. That is always dangerous, okay, when kids are telling how parents operate. And the kids are telling me about Mom's has this home business, and they are so excited because next week there, after the week of meetings I was preaching, we're going to head down south, and we have vacation planned, and we're going to be down there, and we're going to have all this time with our family, da 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 and it's going to be really, really good. And the best part about it is we can go, and it's going to be almost paid by the government. It's like, oh, how do you get a family vacation paid by the government? I'm curious, okay? And so I'm one of those tactless people that ask more questions, okay? So I, how, how do you do this? Well, if you, you know, if you have a business and in the business of showing kettles or whatever she was selling, if we go down there and if mom spends five minutes showing any kettle to her relatives... This is a family business trip, and everything we do can be written off as a business expense because she showed the kettles for a few minutes. Technically, can somebody get away and say, well, I guess that week's vacation spending five minutes technically is business? Is there a moral ethical issue there? I I personally think it's a huge moral issue. You know, uh, that it's, it's a deceptive, abusive type situation. It was never intended those, those benefits to be done by that, that way. And what really amazes me about Abraham's technicality here, more than anything else, I'm amazed by Sarah. Maybe I'm the only one in this room. But ladies, if your husband suggested to you, okay, I will lie and it might cause me to go into somebody's harem for a bit just so you don't get hurt. I would think my wife would hurt me, okay? And I wouldn't blame her. It just, it just, it it baffles my mind that she would agree to this. That she wouldn't say, are you nuts, man? You know, there's other words that I would think she would say as well. It just amazes me. But he comes up with this, this cockamamie plan that is, technically true but meant to deceive and to lie and in God's point of view it's a lie okay his worst fears come true they get down there now watch the story as it unfolds it came to pass that when Abraham was coming into Egypt the Egyptians woo, 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 they beheld a woman and she was beautiful then it says in verse 15 it's not Pharaoh who gets, gets uh, you know, catches Pharaoh's eye whose, whose attention does she catch It says very clearly, the princes also of Pharaoh saw her and commended her before Pharaoh. And then the woman's taken to Pharaoh. There's underlings in the court who want to get in good with Pharaoh. We found you a gal. We found you a Palestinian type gal. She is beautiful and she's mature okay and she's lovely and she could join your harem and she would she'd be a trophy on your mantelpiece and so what happens is the story goes on it gets really convoluted watch what happens it says the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house and he Pharaoh entreated Abraham well for her sake he had sheep oxen asses men servants maid servants she asses camels what is pharaoh paying abram what's it called it's a dowry He's paying for her. I'm not so sure Abraham thought it would get this bad. Yeah we'll get down there it'll be safe but now he got himself caught up in this situation and now it's kind of you know I guess there's a benefit he's making money out of the deal. You know, and, and you know how it is if you make money then it must be okay. Right? And so here he is he's down there and so he's she's gone. I wonder how lonely his tent was those few nights, however many nights it was. I wonder what she was thinking as she pillowed her head. When I see him again, well, brother, okay, he won't be looking out either eye for a while. We don't know. We don't know, but I just can't imagine that this is going to be a peaceful situation. And then we have in the Hebrew, it says this. In the Hebrew, verse 17, it says, but God now, my King James says, and the Lord. But in the Hebrew, it's, but God. So Abraham is, this, this so reminds me of David's passage when David and his Bathsheba, and David sent, and David sent, and David sent, and David did this, and David did this, but then God sent Nathan. Same thing. David's, I'm sorry, Abraham's conniving, manipulating, coming up with what seems so logical, and this is kind of technically okay, and he's got this all figured out but God. But God. What a, what a tremendous statement here. Abraham's wrong. He lies for personal gain, that is his own safety, and did it to save his own skin. He's going to make money out of the deal. I don't know if he intended to, but it doesn't say like he gave the money back and said, I can't do this anymore. Okay? He's you're wrong. God intervenes via chastisement. The irony of the chastisement is it's not personally directed against Abraham. Okay. If I, if, if, again, good thing I'm not God. But if Abraham was my servant and he did this and I wanted, I, I'd kick him in the seat of the pants. He doesn't get it. Look at what it says. But the Lord, he goes on, plagued who? Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Pharaoh calls Abram. This must have been an interesting meeting. What do you think, Abraham, how he walked into Pharaoh's presence? You know, Sheepish? Proud? You know, I pulled one over on you? I don't know. And he said, what is this that you have done unto me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister, so that I might have taken her to wife? Now therefore behold your wife, take her and... Put it in modern English. Get out of here. Get out of my sight. Yeah, Go home. Get out of there. And so what happens in this text is this lying is just, here, observations. Lying is wrong, 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 even if motivated out of fear and self-preservation. It's still wrong. Even if it's motivated out of, hey, this is going to be to my advantage. I can lie a little bit. It'll be to my profit. It's wrong. Even if other people around us are encouraging it to do it and Sarah would say, well, he's a godly man. You know she's a godly woman we're kind of both of us agreeing this is a good deal it's still wrong. Even if Sarah your authority your head the one you're to be subject to the one that according to Peter you call Lord even if he's telling you to do this you don't do it it's wrong. It's wrong. Even if you think you're getting away with it and it seems like, hey wait, the transactions have taken place, we don't know how many hours have gone by, how many minutes, or if there's any days that have gone by but it didn't come to to slap him immediately it's still wrong. It is still wrong. A lie is a lie it's wrong. Watch what the New Testament tells us several times. Let us walk honestly as in the day. We read elsewhere in Thessalonians, walk honestly towards them that are without. In other words, the people that we should be honest with is one another, but also who else? Just because they're unsaved doesn't mean I can lie to them. I can cheat them because you know, they're unsaved. You know, this is the Lord's way of providing for me by lying to those folk. I can lie to the insurance company. I can lie to the tax card. Besides, the government's got a lot of money anyway. Really? Really? That's our ethics? Here he goes, Wherefore, put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. We are members one of another. We read, Wherefore, brethren, looking out for leaders in the church, seek out men. First criteria. First criteria of looking for people who are going to lead. Honest report. If they don't have integrity then they can't lead. People have got to have integrity. We were having a conversation just at supper about how important personal integrity is, even when nobody else knows it. God does. We need to be people that are honest in what we do and not, not giving in to half-truths, half-lies. Lying is wrong. Lying's, they, the lying, it doesn't stay hidden. It's going to come out. Be sure your sin will... Yeah, it's going to happen. Lying is not harmless. You know, what, what I am amazed by is the standard that many have for their kids when it comes to lying, but they don't hold to themselves. I'm amazed by that. I'm amazed that we would expect others to be honest, but we would not be honest. Doesn't the Bible say treat others as you would have them? treat you or do unto you. This idea of, uh, of integrity is so important. Here's why. The fallout from Abraham and Sarah's lie. Watch just a few, uh, pose a few things. Obviously Pharaoh's household is hurt. They are physically plagued by the Lord. Whatever that plague was, I don't know, you don't know, but something happened. There was a physical harm of some sort that came to them, and we don't know what it was. Abraham loses his testimony. Why have you done this to us? All these other people in the court, they hear about this guy who just came down. Do you realize he was the first witness that could have been there in the Egyptian court? The first believer of faith that could have been giving a testimony, what a way to blow it. What a way to set the stage for future generations. His relationship with Sarah, I don't know, you don't know, okay? But could it have been adversely affected? I think this. I think his family is definitely affected by it. I think Sarah, the weaker of the two probably, her ethics were were fudged by this. Because later on, doesn't she adopt a logical worldly practice of saying, well, this is how we can get a baby. We can do it different than what God is saying, and this is the way the world does it, so it'll be okay. It's technically okay for you to have a relationship with Hagar. What encouraged her to come up with that cockamamie idea? Her husband coming up with dumb stuff earlier and not setting a higher standard? Hey, he's gotten increased wealth. So by getting, by getting this increased wealth, it came out well anyway. Really? Isn't the wealth the problem in chapter 13 that caused all kinds of conflict between Lot and him? What about Lot being influenced by the riches of Egypt so that when he makes a decision, he heads for the population center that God is even warned about, that Abraham knows is bad. Then there's one other character not introduced but probably, you know, at this statement not stated but introduced later on. We read about this one gal. Do you know that chapter 16 says she's the Egyptian, Hagar the Egyptian? When did Sarah probably get her? When did this thing this this Hagar when did this create problems later on? Hagar's relationship and introduction into the family uh, how, how about is it still a problem today with the Arabs and the Jews? There's all kinds of difficulties that come from a lie. And it doesn't go away quickly. Usually it comes you know, for a long time after that. Okay, Abraham is rebuked. Abraham is told, you've really blown it big time. What's his response? Well, Abraham went up out of the land of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, lot with him. He's very rich in cattle and silver and gold. He went on his journeys from the south even to, wait a minute, he's going back to Bethel. Anybody remember the name of Bethel, what it means? It's a place he entitled the house of okay, house of God house Beth and El being Elohim, under the place where his tent had been at the beginning, under the place of the what? Where does he return to? The altar which he had made there, and there Abraham does what? Now he's calling upon the name of the Lord. He returns to the land God gave him. He returns to the place of worship, where he should have been anyway. He goes back, and now he is calling upon the name of the Lord. What strikes me is this story on both sides of the story the book ends he's calling upon the name of the Lord he's calling upon the name of the Lord but not during this whole crisis is it mentioned it's never stated that he's calling upon the name of the Lord here's this guy he's repentant he's calling upon the name of the Lord he gets back on track so let's make some observations life lessons okay as you and I follow the Lord it's going to happen we're going to face trials we're going to face challenges they're going to happen They're going to be there. They're going to test our integrity. They're going to test our character. We need to be careful not to use questionable strategies. When all of a sudden we're tested by a bill. We're tested by some relationship. We're tested by something that happens at work. Will we tell the truth or will we fudge so as to save our neck? To make it profitable? How are we going to respond in those situations when those tests come? when those difficulties come, are we going to be people of integrity? Others would encourage us maybe by word or by action not to be so honest. And if I'm not so honest and I kind of just don't tell the boss everything that's really happening, you know, it won't hurt me so bad. And even if, you know, even if I just, you know, fudge things, you know, when it comes to finances, I can get ahead a little bit better. Then I'll be able to pay this. Oh, in fact, if I, don't give, if I don't give the full truth of what happened on that insurance report, I might get more money, and I can easily then with more money give more to the Lord. This is spiritual. I'm going to honor God this way. Saul did that. Remember King Saul didn't obey the Lord, and he said, I brought all these items back to make a sacrifice, and Samuel's response... Disobedience is as the sin of witchcraft. This isn't worship. Lack of integrity is not worship. Lack of obedience is not worship. It's not accepted by the Lord. Always remain honest in a person of integrity. Always. If you find you have fallen into a bad response, you lost your integrity, you were not, repent repent of it, remember that our God is patient and faithful Abraham, he's patient and faithful and he's going to forgive you if you are willing to repent and have a spirit and an attitude that I will learn and grow from what I have done not that I'm going to repent but I'm still going to continue Now, there's got to be an attitude that I want to change, I want to grow how honest, here's a big question, how honest are you with God right now we sit here, we say, okay, we love the Lord, we want to serve the Lord. How honest is that? How honest from your heart to God's? I would hope that for every one of us it is 100% clear. God knows we're trying our best. How honest are you with the people around you? Have you been giving them true statements, honest statements? Or is there some conflict brewing between you and somebody else? And you've been lying about things. You have to deal with that. Whether it be your spouse, your kids, your family members, we need to be people of integrity. Otherwise when we come to prayer we cannot expect blessings from the Lord. Let's go to the Lord and one of the first prayers, if needed tonight, pray for forgiveness and repentance and for God to bless. Then let's focus in on praying for all these other prayer requests that were mentioned plus the many more on the list. Thank you.